Hello, it's Vikas Pota, Chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course, the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF. So my name is Jiang Xueqian. I am a China-based educator and writer. And I, it is my pleasure to introduce you to you four panelists, and we together will offer insights into what's happening in China right now. As everyone knows, um, Chinese education is very dynamic, it's very diverse, and we want to, as a group, share with you what's happening. Um, this is Lily Wong. She is the head of the English department at Beijing Number no. 8 High School, which is one of the top high schools in China. Uh, Russell Hazard um, from M MIT Education Group. He's the director of teaching and learning at a private school in Beijing. Professor Xu Jinghuan, who is a professor of education at Tsinghua University, which is the very best university in um, China. People like to say that Tsinghua is the MIT of China. It would be more accurate to say that Tsinghua is the MIT, Harvard, and Stanford combined of China. <laughs> and then we have uh, Mr. Xiao Dun, Dun, who is the president and co-founder of Ichi Joye, Homework Together, which is an edtech unicorn, um, which means that they have over $1 billion in valuation. Is that correct? Okay, so we have a lot to cover today. So the game plan is we want everyone to walk away, walk away from this room with 10 insights, 10 lessons that the 10 lessons that make Chinese education great and which you can take back to your school or to your school system. That's a game plan. I'm not sure if we can accomplish this today, but we'll, we'll try very hard. Okay, so my first question is for Lily Wong. Okay. Um, Chinese teachers are extremely motivated. Yeah. In fact, there, there's been a Barclay Foundation survey that said that Chinese teachers are the most, are the most respected in the world. Why are Chinese teachers so respected? Um, I think uh, this is from our Chinese culture, and we believe knowledge is the power, but also because the teacher development is really professional and critical in China. Can I give an example? Sure, absolutely. Okay. So the teacher, um, the teacher training system is great in China. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, because teacher is a job that, um, very complicated and very challenging. And some teachers are just kind of important teachers. Um, they can be motivated themselves, um, like self-discovery, self-renew. However, many other teachers, they just treat teaching as, as a job, stable job with two vacations. So that's why in China, we try to motivate teachers with two aspects, in, intrinsic aspect and the extrinsic aspect. For example, my school, we like to provide opportunities for teachers to, to interact with each other in a very friendly, professional way. You know, I have been in teaching in this school for more than 20 years. I attribute my professional development 
greatly to this kind of friendly and uh, motivated environment. That belongs to intrinsic factors. But external ones like, you know, we have teaching title system. Maybe you don't understand that. Um, let me explain. Teaching titles like we have four basic titles. The best one called master teacher's title. And different teachers will receive different teaching titles based on teacher's academic performance. Our school board will evaluate teachers' overall performance relating to the teacher's demonstration classes, research paper, and feedback from students. In, in China, Teachers from elementary school to high school, they all need to conduct their own action search, try to figure out and solve their own problems in teaching. <coughs> I think this uh, belongs to extrinsic. Right. So I want to paraphrase you, and you tell me if I'm correct or not, okay? Okay. But Chinese teachers are so respected because they're trained very well to do their jobs. Yeah. There are so many strategies in place to make them better at what they do, yeah. and because they're so well trained, that leads to a higher level motivation, yeah. which leads to better teaching performance, yeah. which means that students and um, parents respect them more. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, Professor Xu Jinghuan, you are China's, you are one of China's foremost experts on basic education. Can you explain to us systematically how this works? Uh, uh Professor Wang mentioned about uh, the respections of education in China as a history. And I'm working in the university. And I think from my experience is that the China's uh, as a country with the large population and limited resources. So you do need to have these integrated efforts from both centralized from the government and also initiated from the institute either the schools, universities, or the companies like, you know, now more and more involved in education. So how you make this joint efforts targeting on the same uh, direction and use the resources from different uh, parts of the country, it's, it's a strategy. It's a, it's, you need to really well plan that. If, I don't know whether you noticed that. Just the last month, uh, China issues what uh, we call the Education Modernizations 2035. So it's a long brin, uh, blueprint for the country to build up this modernized education system, including lifelong education, uh, uh, preschooling, and uh, college. Um, uh, quality uh, basic education and you know enhanced vocational education and more competitive higher education you see that's from the central government also collected the uh, the, the, the ideas from all parts of uh, the sectors try to work out from the top uh, a kind of uh, blueprint for the country and then allows the institute, the individuals, to have this initiative. So later I will mention about, for example, Tsinghua University. Of course, it's a top university, but it's also realized that the multi-functions of a university, not only targeting 
the top students, but also work a lot on you know, the remote uh, or the disadvantaged groups, which the social responsibilities you have to carry on. So I think the, you know, these integrated efforts of government, of uh, institute, working to, to, together, plus the historical respections of education, make China works. Okay, so I've, I've heard three insights already. Lily mentions about how your school system should focus on motivating your teachers. That's the first priority in order to produce better economic outcomes. Second is a critical cultural collaboration so that all teachers grow. And then the third thing I heard from Professor Xu Jinghuan is create a compelling narrative, a broad vision of where you want to take education so that all different stakeholders Government, schools, people can participate yes. and find a role in it. Fantastic. Um, Dun, let's talk, let's talk about, uh, you know, you run a very successful edtech company. What, the, your education in China, the way your teachers teach you, has it contributed to your success today? Well, I wouldn't say we are successful yet. But, uh, <laughs> a billion dollars is pretty successful, yeah. <laughs> uh, we're working on it. And I think that is definitely something that uh, my teachers have taught me. Uh, and I think it is also something that the Chinese uh, culture reflects, is that uh, the literal translation would be that uh, the revolution hasn't been successful, so the comrades still need to work hard. But uh, <laughs> um, I think this is an ongoing reform and open up. I was born in the 1980s, and uh, I think last year we just celebrated the 40th uh, anniversary of the reform and open up. And it's, as Professor Shi mentioned, it's a very long-term process. So it's been reform for the country, and the reform for education has been going on for the last 40 years. Uh, and uh, we just uh, published this uh, 2035 paper, which goes on for another uh, 16 or so years. Uh, so uh, this, uh, I think, long-term kind of thinking is the best kind of thinking for education. Because uh, as many people would say, would uh, label our company uh, a technological disruption, of education, I never agreed with this term. I think no one can disrupt uh, something like education. Mm -hmm. it, uh, ref it requires a lot more continuity than disruption. Uh, evolution is a much better word than revolution in, mm. in the field of education. That's and right. uh, what we do is we uh, use these evolving technology, uh, AI for example, uh, to enable uh, traditional agents of education, most notably teachers, uh, but also students, parents, schools, uh, principals, and uh, uh, these uh, managers, uh, governors of education. Uh, so I, I think very much like uh, Professor Shi mentioned, uh, because there's a top-down um, plan, a long-term blueprint, and because it's uh, instituted into every level of the ecosystem, um, we act a very small part in this uh, forest. Uh, but together, uh, we, the, the waters come together to form rivers and, and seas and uh, uh, small leaves grow into trees. And I think this is what happened in China uh, over the last uh, decade for education. Also, what happened in China over the last de decade for many other aspects of the society. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the fourth insight is to evolve your school system, right? As opposed to implementing uh, too many reforms, just evolve it, build on strings and make your school system better. Okay, school improvement. Thank you. Russell, um, you've been in Beijing for um, six years. You're originally from Canada. Yeah. Um, being in China for so, for so long, what most impresses you about the Chinese school system and how teachers are trained? 
Well, uh, those are two separate things. I mean, I think teacher training, there's a lot of great teacher training in different areas of the world and professional development that's ongoing. I think it needs to fit the context. So I'll start with what I think is impressive. Um, ID school fits in a niche. We've got this public school system. There's a very, very robust private school system where um, students who want to be exposed to foreign curricula have the opportunity to do that. Um, and that's, that's supported because the, the society wants to move towards a knowledge-based society, right? And then you've got the higher education and ed tech. And I think they all play a, a significant role in China because the country itself is so diverse. So if I've got a takeaway, it's that it, I don't know anyone who hasn't you know, come to China and spent time there in education who really understands it. So <laughs> China is incredibly diverse. That's an understatement. And along with that is the fact that it is highly experimental. A lot of the people who I talk to on the outside, it's like as if there's this monolithic uh, mentality of rote learning and Confucian ideals. Uh, that is not the case. There is a tremendous amount of crosstalk. Um, I, Let's just take the private school system. It is so competitive that my entire role is just going out into the world, spending time with top people all over the world, bringing the ideas back, working with teams, like you said, it's very collaborative, to create something that fits the context, testing it, action research, action research, this works here, this doesn't work there. Then we have our friends from the public schools and we go to the public schools and, and that is actually an incredibly dynamic kind of ecosystem, which is exactly what we want. So if I was to give a takeaway, it's like, everyone needs to be a bit more humble about their own system and take a look around the world. That's something that I love about this event is it's like we've got people from Africa and people from India, and there is something to learn from everywhere, so. Yeah. Okay. So three insights from Russell. One is create a diverse ecosystem of like different stakeholders, ed tech and private schools. Um, six is allow people to experiment, right? And seven is share and share lessons learned um, with each other so that everyone's improves. That's fantastic. Lily, I want to come back to you because you and I were talking and what China does that's unique in the world, I've actually never seen this done anywhere else in the world, is something called demonstration classes. So uh, for, 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 for those of you who don't know, demonstration classes are where teachers put on a performance for other, for other schools. So they will, for one class, teach, uh, teach one class so that other teachers from other schools and possibly other provinces can observe what they do. So Lily, can you talk about demonstration classes and its, a, it's effect on, on your school? Yeah, it's like a young teacher's showcase, but um, it's not for teachers' competition, demonstration class. It's for teachers' you know, communication and sharing ideas with each other. For example, uh, take my school. You know, every October, young teachers less than 35 years old, they need to give demonstration class. Um, let me give more specific example. Yeah, yeah that'd okay. be fantastic. Um, my colleague, Dylan, uh, he only has three years teaching experience in English department. Last year, he decided to give a demonstration class 
Kaito Spring Festival. So before he did that, as a mentor teacher, I'm his mentor teacher, and so we discuss about this teaching plan in details, like in terms of um, objective, content, and teaching methods, and which kept like one week. And after he finished his teaching plan, he went to another teacher's class to do the trial teaching. And with the other teacher's advice and the students' voices, and he polished his lesson plan again. So that's kept like two weeks with the meticulous preparation. He finally gave the demonstration to his own students and to all the school teachers. And during this process, you see the young teachers growing because by careful preparation, discussion with the other teachers, he, he just grow very fast mentally and academically. So in the West, um, we don't have demonstration classes, but we, but we have something called master's thesis or research papers. It sounds very similar in effect. Yeah. You know, with a research paper, you are constantly exploring new ideas. Yeah. And you're trying to formulate an understanding, a coherent understanding of education, and they present to other people to get feedback. So it sounds very similar. At yeah, because we encourage young teachers to try new and ways. And these are just new teachers, right? Yeah, new teachers with new ideas in their English class with the experienced teacher's help. But if they're, if they're so young and they're so new, aren't you overwhelming them with too much information in this process? Yeah, that's the problem. That's why it's not just one teacher's job. It's a teamwork. You know, we, we create very relaxed atmosphere for these teachers to share his belief and understanding. So on that day, he would not be nervous. So um, Professor Sher, I, I want to come, come back to you for a broad perspective. Can you talk, about, talk us about why there are demonstration classes and systematically what, is, what its effect is on the Chinese school system? I think we all, as working in the education, we all understand that children grew up as a human being, you know, uh, holistically, not separated by elementary school, secondary school, and university. Our adults, our experts, for our convenience, we divided this to elementary, secondary, and uh, university. So when you think about that, think about from a student's growth up, that perspective, you do need to concerns about how really the system works. Uh, in China, I don't know whether in the other part of the world, sometimes we have this kind of uh, complaint from the university, we complain. The basic education, they didn't do the good job. The students we received are not that qualified and they complained about, you know, our best students we sent to the college, and you see, you know, so why this happened? Because we didn't see this in the whole system. So that's why I think from the perspective of a, a, a holistic development or a growth, we do need to consider the more interactions both uh, the uh, uh, universities and schools, teachers and students, and even with the families, with the parents. So that now 
I think that's also one of the targets for the reform. Mm. I, why we work out the overall system reform? Because we realize that what we're doing professionally sometimes means not really facilitate the growth, but also damage that, you know. So for example, in Tsinghua, mentioned about the teachers, young teachers training. Tsinghua University, which is uh, uh, used to be the best engineering, uh, natural science, technology uh, oriented university. But they really see teaching as a very important issue. Mm. So all the teachers, no matter you are young or are your experienced teachers, but when you first time teach in Tsinghua, you have to receive the training. Okay. So the training not only means skill of teaching, but also the history of the university. The specific emphasizing and also the specific characters of the university. So all the teachers need to be trained in, in, in China. Even the university, now more and more universities has established, we call the Faculty Professional Development Center. When the first time it comes out in the university, especially in the research university, they think about the research capacity. But now it's more and more moved to the teaching. So teaching as a university is a new issues for the, uh, the administrations and for the faculties to concerns about. Okay. So Can I interject from just from a foreign perspective? Sure. Because I'm thinking of a lot of foreign teachers, if you're in the audience, uh, teachers, would be horrified by this notion, <laughs> right? Because it's like you're creating this kind of packaged lesson and it's like as if I'm supposed to give your lesson, how does that fit me and how does that fit my context? So I think it's worth just throwing out there. This is like a traditional means of spreading practice. So then you do apply it after to your own context. So as an example, we don't do exactly this in my school because we've got a mixed Chinese and foreign population. So our professional development is a mix and it's also designed to create um, the community which we lack because not everybody's from the same culture. But if we take something like uh, visible thinking and thinking routines, right? And you know, we run a program on that with a few teachers or we introduce you know, mini whiteboards or any of these other things. Within weeks, it spread through the whole school. And, and so this can be used in a very flexible way as well for like great pedagogy, very open pedagogy. Um, so it's, it, it's easy to confuse from an outsider's point mm. of view, creating like a mic lesson, which you must robotically follow and somehow um, mentoring and passing things on in a way which is, it's a little culturally unique, but that doesn't mean that it is without value. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so what I'm hearing is, insight number eight is, grow your teachers by treating them as creative professionals. That's, you know, that, that's something that I think is obvious with demonstration classes, where you get teachers to think deeply and self-reflect about their own teaching in order to implement um, an ideal class for the teachers. So insight number eight would be treat your teachers as creative professionals. Okay, um, do not, I, I wanna ask you this question because you've been schooled in the best schools 
in the world, right? You were at the best high school in China, then you went to the UK, you've been to Cambridge, you've been to Harvard. Can you tell us from a student perspective what is great about the Chinese school system and what is great about the Western school system and how you've managed to combine the two together? Yeah, um, so I, I believe uh, Tsinghua's uh, school motto is uh, self-discipline and social commitment. Uh, not sure if this is a correct translation, but it's yes. roughly like this. You um, have been to Tsinghua, right? Have you been to Tsinghua? Mm, well, I'm taking kind of a joint course, uh, mini MBA program oh. by Tencent and Tsinghua, okay. uh, Tsinghua SEM. I see. Um, but I, I think this uh, motto works across the world. Mm -hmm. So I think this is kind of the Chinese idea of an ideal gentleman um, and uh, someone who is educated. And it's also the Western idea of an uh, ideal gentleman who is well-educated. Well but I think the approach is somewhat different. Um, I, I think uh, when I was uh, doing my elementary education in China, there was more of an emphasis on self-discipline. Um, and this discipline somewhat comes from pressure, uh, pressure from my parents, fr pressure from uh, school, also pressure from my peer. And I think a degree of pressure is, is not unhealthy. And okay. I think in today, I think the overarching theme is uh, you know, self-drive and interest. And I think this is something I gained from Western education, especially the part of higher education where I was uh, given more freedom to explore and choose. Uh, but I think a degree of discipline, and I think this uh, professor from uh, UPenn, uh, Andrew Duckworth, uh, she coined the term grit, I think is uh, really essential uh, for any student uh, to be able to understand that there is also, apart from interest, a degree of responsibility uh, and uh, intrinsic care for everyone else around you. And I think this uh, so view of the student, not just as an individual, but also as a part of the social society, you know, you're part of your family, you're part of the class, you're part of the school, you're part of the country, uh, part of your, your race, uh, and, and we are all part of the human system. And I, I think this uh, idea of uh, harmony between people and uh, leading down to you know, the relationship between people, uh, leading down to you know, self-discipline, uh, because you need to be responsible not just for yourself. And I think this is uh, really important for me. Uh, you know, today, when I uh, run the company, I think apart from letting everyone find their interest and uh, deliver uh, their uh, best capabilities on their strengths, also they need to be responsible for the company's mission. And they need to be responsible for our users, like the teachers and students. Um, so I think this is, um, I, I find eventually these two philosophies are the same. Um, we are both extrinsic expressions of ourselves and also intrinsic expressions of something much bigger than us. Uh, but I think the approaches of the Chinese and uh, Western education systems are different. And uh, I think by chance, I, 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 I think I, I, I went through the best uh, path. So when, during my younger years, I was taught discipline. And, uh, uh, I had some basic rules laid out for me, and uh, I knew very broadly what my interests are. And uh, during my latter higher education, uh, I was given more freedom uh, to explore. So insight number nine would be instill discipline as a basis for lifelong learning, right? Treat discipline as a very important um, value and habit to have in, 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 in children. Um, Talk some more about what you gain from uh, the learning in the West. Yeah, so uh, I went to the UK when I was uh, 
16, uh, on a scholarship. Um, and at the time, I just uh, couldn't understand it, um, that a stranger would uh, give me money to study. Uh, and it was a lot of money. Um, I got a scholarship also from Cambridge uh, when I was 18. And uh, it could be a full scholarship, so I wrote an email to my sponsor. And I said, you know, you don't have to sponsor me anymore. And uh, to my surprise, he replied and said, if you don't mind, I would like to still sponsor most of your tuition. And you can take a part of the money from Cambridge. I would, uh, I would like to meet your sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so I, you know, I just couldn't understand why someone would uh, do this. Um, so I, you know, I kept asking him this question, why did you do it? What do you want from me? And, uh, <laughs> Uh, during his uh, 50th birthday, I think he sponsored about 30 students or so. And he took us to a film, uh, which was called Pay It Forward. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that time, I understood that uh, he didn't want anything for me to pay him back. Uh, he wanted me to pay it forward. And I think, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say this is a Western philosophy, uh, but um, I think I, I was first exposed to this philosophy at that time. I fully, because before I had, you know, there were many things in the Chinese philosophy about uh, gratitude to your parents, gratitude to your teachers, gratitude to everyone who has helped you, and uh, I had no idea how to express this gratitude uh, uh, well. Um, so at that time I understood that there is a, apart from uh, filial piety and uh, paying respect to your teachers, there is a way of paying for. Uh, and I think in many ways what I do now uh, both professionally and also outside uh, my professional life is uh, trying to spread the value of paying it forward. Um, yeah, Mind sure, if I build also, on yeah, that? Just yeah. because you said you wanted like more of a sure, conversation. Sure, yeah, go ahead. Um, like that harmony thing. I, I want to link this back to the concept behind this conference, right? Um, it's like who's creating change in the world and how do we do that? and these kinds of ideas. And I was in a, I was in a session previously and there was a great heated discussion about 21st century skills and are they terrible or are they great or whatever. And uh, I actually went to China because I wanted to do uh, a doctorate focusing on SDG 4.7, which is global citizenship education and education for sustainable development. And I thought, oh, this has got to be like the, one of the perfect places in the world to do it. And at the time when they were having that argument, I was thinking like, this argument is a little Western centric because the notion of 21st century skills was developed in the West and it was to address a specific perception that uh, we are highly developed, we don't need to develop anymore. What we need to do is um, make our people highly competitive against the outsiders and against each other and in this market condition, we will somehow find ourselves getting as close to utopia as we can, right? So there's a whole ideology there too. We can never forget we have our ideologies as well. And when you take um, the vision of 21st century skills and flip it on its head and say, well, what we're really talking about if we want a just and sustainable world is more along the lines of education for sustainable development and global citizenship education, which really encompasses all of those same skills, right? But it adds certain vectors like temporal awareness, like systems thinking, like fairness thinking. And, and this really goes into like what you're talking about, about um, there is a harmony perspective and a collaborative and a cooperative historical cultural element 
in Asia, I think we could say, but in China particularly, that um, really lends itself to this notion of education for sustainable development. And like my school has pivoted completely in that direction. It's like the whole point of our school is, yeah, we want like uh, we want to graduate leaders, but we want to graduate leaders who are, you know, dynamic and making their country a better place and preferably the world a better place. And um, I just wanted to build on that because I think, again, spending time overseas is good for any educator, and I know most of us do it at some point or another, and I've been humbled a lot, right? That's just the reality. It's not that I think, any, it's not perfect anywhere, but um, when you have these ingrained perspectives, it's very useful to step in someone else's shoes. And we're here at this conference, and this conference is about changing the world in a beneficial way within the framework of the SDGs. And I would like to throw out there that maybe we should throw out the term 21st century skills altogether <laughs> and start talking about education for sustainable development and all of the factors that fit in with that, like a feeling of paying it forward to the historical um, milieu that brought you into existence and the future generations that we should be giving rights to and the society as a broader world now. And I think that this is, it's something that I never realized outside and it's worth bringing up in this conversation. So, uh, Professor Xu Jinghuan, uh, Russell raises some great questions. Mm -hmm. What is education for? Mm -hmm. And what sort of students should we, should we trying to educate? Mm -hmm. And you are at the best university in China, it is. It has been consistent, consistently ranked one of the top ten schools around the world in terms of engineering and the hard sciences. So, given that you have the best students in all of China, and they'll become your future leaders, mm. how are you trying to educate them, and what skills, what values are you trying to teach them? Okay, so I mentioned about you know in China the integrated. Um, efforts from the government and the institutions. I think the particular case should be this world-class construction project, which, you know, in Tsinghua, in uh, mid-80s, if you have a, a, a kind of a background, you know that uh, the Cultural Revolution stopped in late 70s, so we opened up the use this opened up policy from the late 70s. So in mid 80s, Tsinghua itself already have this set up these goals to build up the world class university. But what is, what does that mean? What is the world class university? At that time, nobody knows. We just think we should be, you know, make us better. So then as an educator, we are assigned by the university's uh, administrators to really tell them what the world class really means from the university perspective. And then 10 years later, uh, late in 1998, uh, Jiang Zemin, you know, at that time the chairman, made the speech in Beida uh, the first time to say in, in China we should have the uh, few of the world-class university. So it becomes a national strategy. So by that time, we're still working on what that's really world-class means. So we know Harvard and Cambridge are 
very good. But how you say you are as good as them? You know, from the inside of the university, it's difficult to compare, you know. Even now, uh, uh, the Tsinghua, we already become a comprehensive university. But still, people talk about your MIT in, in China. And so you, you, you see universities have some kind of images. And also, you have a history which you have to carry out. So later, we find out, at least the first step is to have at least the quantitative indicators which you should reach. For example, international publication. And you know, the, the, the some features you should have, more uh, openness and uh, more you know, uh, faculties uh, from different perspective. And so now those kind of quantitative indicators we start from and then gradually reached you know, by the ranking, you know, I don't really believe uh, the university ranking. But you can see those kind of quantitative indicators you are reaching by step by step. Uh, the most recent, uh, you know, Times ranking, uh, Tsinghua is ranking 22, you know, the number one in Asia, but we don't believe it. But we see step by step, they are making progress in quantitative indicators, but now, we are moving. We said, no, these quantitative indicators are not enough. So you should have your soul. What is your soul as a university? So now some people, they are scared about Chinese characters. You know, we say we are building a world-class university with the Chinese characters. I said, why you worry about that? Chinese characters means you are not Harvard. You are not Cambridge. You are Tsinghua, which grew up in this own soil. So you should have your own soul. So this soul means you carried out the culture. You respect the country's needs. And you really make contributions for the, for the fields which you grew up. So I don't think this world-class university with Chinese characters really damaged something. But as a sustainable development, the global-wide, China as the largest country in the world, if you cannot solve your own problem, how you say, you, you know, so first we need to solve the problems we are facing. But we are not just facing the problem for Chinese, but that's for the globally. So in Tsinghua recently, we use these policies for we call the global competence or global strategy for the, uh, the university. For example, uh, in 2013, we established what we call the Swarthman College, which is from the donations of, uh, you know, the... the so, so, so Swarthman College, uh, for those of you who don't know, it's China's version of the World Scholarship. Mm, a scholarship provides for the best students, not only from China, but from all over the world. And it's not in engineering, not in natural sciences. It's in the social, in, in the um, public relation, uh, no, public policy, economy, and international relations. So it's targeting for cultivating the future leaders for not only China but world. And also we try to attract, you know, more international uh, faculties uh, to carry it out to mix up, you know. Uh, in this campus, and 60% of the 
Tsinghua students have the experience of overseas learning uh, at, uh, or attending conferences. And now, you know, we're trying to provide an uh, environment for the students that you are not just the, uh, working, learning, study for China, but for the whole human beings. So these kind of capacities or these kind of awareness is something which the university can talk about, but also you have to realize that is something in the everyday life, not in the slogan. So insight number 10, and the last insight, um, and what I'm hearing from Professor Xu Jinghuan is, be proud of what you've accomplished, be proud of your culture, at the same time be humble about your limitations and always seek to improve. Okay, well, um, that's it for, for my questions, but I'm sure the audience um, has many, many questions. So we have a microphone, and we're gonna pass the microphone around the room and catch all questions, okay? And then, we're, and then we'll have the panelists respond, okay? So, so rather than respond to one question directly, uh, let's cap all questions, okay, at once. We have 10 minutes left, so um, this lady here. Uh, Ni hao, hello. Uh, my name's Rebecca, I live in Shanghai, and I'm about to start my doctorate on global skills uh, in the context of international education in China. Um, I'll keep it very short and sweet. We've talked a lot about all the insights and the positive things about Chinese education. What do you think are the main challenges that you face now as the world becomes more globalized? That's a great question. Okay. Uh, next question, please. Uh, gentleman there, and then there. Uh, hi, good afternoon. Thank you. Uh, my name is Edward Little. I run the uh, Education Investment Group at Ardian. We have Europe's largest private equity fund with 92 billion under management. Um, we recently acquired a business called Study Group, which is the world's largest pathway program. Uh, and our investment thesis is predicated on at least over the medium term, students predominantly from China, which is where 60% of the students come from, still seek a Western higher education. So I'd like to draw on sort of your insights, Don, from talking about the benefits you had from a disciplined domestic Chinese education and then going into the West, and Professor Xi as well. When do you see, and if, when, when would the transition be where Chinese students perhaps stop looking for a Western education and start thinking that actually the best is gonna be in China? Well, that's two questions, one for Russell and one for Professor Shur, okay? Uh, just a gentleman here. Uh, please raise your hand if you have a question. Okay, and, and then this lady over here. Thanks. Um, my question uh, is to the panel. Um, first of all, it's fascinating to hear Chinese reflections. Uh, I have a question. My name's Ruben. I work for Teach First in the UK, and we train 3,000 teachers per year. My question is, how do we train teachers in how do you train teachers in China to ensure that the the poor students um, achieve uh, to the same level as their wealthier peers? This is an equity question. Okay, yes. one, one, one more question over here, please. Good afternoon. My name is Beata Wen. I'm from Los Angeles. I'm a principal uh, preschool all the way through eighth grade, about 220 students, so tiny compared to the, the systems. We have 266 schools in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. My question is, how can a school leader like myself um, influence the mind shift from a highly competitive school system to an authentically relevant school system? Mm -hmm. 
um, our school has already aligned itself to the SDGs 2030, but I'm the only school in 266 schools that has done so. And how can I scale that? How can, what, how, what can I do as a leader to try and think differently and to take knowledge bases from China, from India, from Africa, and integrate them so that it is not just a, a Western Eurocentric perspective? Um, and one more question over here. Um, we are running out of time, so, 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 so let's, let's go back to the panel. Okay, so Lily, tell us what the main challenges are in the Chinese school system. Um, too many challenges. <laughs> okay, um, probably it's a very popular word is Gaokao, entrance examination for university. Yeah, this is examination driven. We are trying to change this way from imparting knowledge to stimulating learning, but it's a long way to go because teachers usually it's hard for them to jump out of the box, but we are doing that. So sometimes as a head of English department, I'm doing for myself. Okay, like I don't teach textbook, I teach drama, debate, speech, movie in English. So we are doing little bit by little bit to get rid of this kind of a examination driven system. Okay. So just start, right? What, what I'm yeah. hearing is there's lots of issues, challenges, creativity is the main issue. Yeah. But just start somewhere. Start with a teacher, start with a classroom, start with school, doesn't matter, just start somewhere. Russell, there was a question for, for you about um, going overseas. Yeah, I'm going to have to have him rephrase that. But just before I forget, because I really respect what you're trying to do and I know it's difficult, a couple points. Um, UNESCO ASPNet, do you know them? Uh, I'll give you my card after. Okay, there's a network of schools around the world that you can get involved with, and they've got amazing, amazing programming and support. UNESCO MGIP, which is their... Um, their research base in India, it's in Delhi, they're amazing, they're just dedicated to SDG 4.7 and they've got a ton of stuff for you. And then from there, just reach out like you're doing here and make friends, we're gonna talk, okay? So, so his question is, why are so many Chinese students going overseas and do you see the trend continue, continuing? Yeah, okay, so that question, I think it really depends on the kid, right? I mean, we're talking about a population which is mind-blowing. So of course there's diversity within that population. So we serve students who, you know, that is their dream. And that's why we, uh, like the motto of the school is tailor your future. I mean, on one campus we have an American school, American high school, a British high school, an Australian high school, an art and design school if you want to go to Parsons, right? So. They're kids who want to do that, and there's enough humility and openness in the system that the government wants them to do that. It's like, go, have fun, learn, enjoy, live there if you want, come back if you can, because we've got a country to build here, right? There's other kids who don't want to do that, and I would say the vast majority of students do stay home. We forget that because the population is so big, sometimes it feels like, whoa, there's so many kids coming over here. But most of them are staying at home, and most of them want to. Great. In fact, I even have a couple kids in my program who are there because of their parents, and they want to stay home. So the growing diversity of the Chinese, yeah. of the Chinese society, okay. Uh, Professor Sher, what does, what does Chinese higher education need to do to retain the best students? <laughs> Okay, in a global world, you're kind of isolated yourself. And you have to really establish this environment which 
people goes and comes, and maybe they go for several years and comes. Maybe they go never comes, but more other people comes. So I think many uh, issue problems come from the transition period in China. You know, as a country which, for a long tradition, you know, people get used to the way of thinking, the way of life. But now it's in a transition time. You know, the things you are familiar with are not that workable. And the things which are very good, but you are not really accepted. So this kind of transition also means in the system, we haven't really ready for the variety of, you know, inclusive. Uh, it seems the assessment system is still follow the old way and also, you know, the management system still too tough, you know, to really allow a variety of in initiatives comes out. So I think in China we should have be patient. You know, changes in happened already tremendously. Don't really believe, you know, change always or reform always positive. It means also the lessons you have to learn and the, the payment, you, you know, you, you have to prepare for that and people need the more time, you know, to prepare themselves for the variety of uh, 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 the existence and the differences. Thank you. Do you have one minute to tell us how to make sure rich students get the same education as poor students? Equity. Yes. One minute, please. So I think uh, the biggest challenges of education, both in China and all over the world, is the uh, problem of both uh, massification and personalization. And uh, these two problems are kind of two different axes. And uh, if you only try to solve this problem in traditional ways, then you have to use exponential resources. So, you know, a thousand times more good teachers, for example. Uh, maybe a thousand more teacher trainers. Uh, but with technology, which is itself the tech, uh, exponential power, you can address uh, both issues at the same time. So in response to this gentleman's teacher training uh, question directly, uh, we use uh, live broadcasting, which is something we use for students before, uh, for classes, for teachers, for teacher training. So now a teacher like uh, Teacher Wang from Beijing Number 8 High School, which is one of the best schools in the country, can give a demonstration class to, before she could only give it to, let's say, 50 students with uh, uh, 10 teachers listening. Now she can potentially give this demonstration class to the, the entire world. So, the so entire you world. need to talk to her afterwards, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Time is up. Thank you so much for the panel and for the audience. Thank you. Bye-bye.